you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to read verse 1, or excuse me, verse 9 uh, this morning, and we'll have one more sermon in this series next week, and hopefully be able to finish up with uh, our study of the Beatitudes before moving on to some holiday series of some kind. We'll go from there. Um, Matthew 5, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray together. Father, we, as we continue to study what it means to be blessed by you and to, to know the, the reality and the, the, the reward of blessing through grace, we pray that you continue to help us to enter into that blessing, that we would enjoy the blessings that you give to those who walk in a manner that is pleasing unto you. We pray as well, Lord, that as we study this particular beatitude this morning in, in relationship to peacemaking, Lord, that you would... Give us that peace that passes all understanding. You would help us to enter into peace and accord with uh, our God and, and, and with our neighbor. Lord, we pray that you would lift us up above uh, the strife and the hostility and, and give us uh, a heavenly peace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I last visited my folks back in North Carolina, um, a couple months ago, I, I took a side trip to my old middle school that I had not been to since the day I stepped off of that property when I was 14 years old, I think it was. And uh, 35 years ago, I had a number of flashbacks that came to me as I was walking around. Of course, they built new buildings since then. I'm sure a number of new coats of paint, but it was still the same old place. And given the fact that it's an outside uh, place, for the most part, warm weather in North Carolina, much of the school has outdoor hallways, if you will. And I remember as I'm walking down, all of a sudden I'm getting all these flashbacks of places that uh, I used to walk to class and run around the track, hang out with friends, et cetera, et cetera. But I could tell you out of all the memories that came to me, very few of them were good. Um, I can honestly say that they were the most bitter and painful days of my life during those three years in that horrible, God-forsaken school. Uh, I purposely never had gone back prior to that particular day, but I went on that day, I think just because I'm middle-aged now, and there's some nostalgia or something that you want to go back and see these old sites. I think I was afraid to go back until this year. And so I finally went, and like I said, I, I remember more than anything how many fistfights I was involved in at that middle school. And I can honestly say I've never been in a fistfight anywhere else other than that one place. Never in high school, never in college, never in the rest, thankfully never in church. I never had a fistfight. But at that one place, I was always seemingly having to defend myself from someone. I, I, can, I can also tell you that I, I remember more hurtful words spoken to me there than anywhere else in my life. And I thought, wow, it really is like a hell on earth. Again, I feel sorry for any of you who are in that stage of life now, but it's a very difficult time. It's Lord of the Flies. Like I said, I, I very much appreciate that book because that was my experience. I feel like any day I was either going to die or I was going to kill someone. That was, that was the experience that you had. But the hardest part for me, I believe, looking back on that time, was realizing I had no hope in my life 
at that time. It was dark. I was alone. I had no one to trust, no one to talk to, no one to have my back, if you will. I had no concept of Christ as a hiding place or as a strong tower or just just as a friend, a friend of sinners. So not only did I not experience that peace and that that sense of well-being, that wholeness of God, I also didn't know how to love anyone else. And so when I was hurt, I became bitter and wanted to hurt others too. It really, it really was just a horrible time of life. And I'm so, so thankful for the gospel of, of Christ, the gospel of peace, and, and what that brings to anyone who is trusted in the name of Jesus. I think one of the greatest benefits that both accompanies and flows out of our salvation is this idea of peace that God gives to us, both in our relationship with Him as well as in our relationship with our our neighbors, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help us to overcome the quarreling and the jealousy and the anger and the hostility and the slander and the gossip and all those other hurtful things that we have a tendency to bring upon one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our peace, who broke down the wall of hostility between men that he might reconcile them both to God through the cross of Christ. So he came preaching peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. One of the, the, the main benefits of the gospel of Christ is not just our vertical relationship of peace with God, but also this horizontal relationship of peace with others as well. It works both ways. It's good news for all of our relationships, not just our eternal relationship with Christ. One of the signs of, of, of Christ's peace and restoration in the early church was often referred to as the holy kiss or the kiss of love, and oftentimes it was also called the kiss of peace. And this was a, a kiss that was given particularly uh, at times uh, when the Lord's Supper was being celebrated in the life of the church, that all of the men who were in one part that were gathered together, the women were gathered in a separate area, the men would all gather together before taking the Lord's Supper and give one another a kiss of peace on the lips, mind you. Not encouraging that, but just letting you know that that was the practice. And then the women would do the same thing. So they would call it the brotherly kiss for the, the guys who were kissing one another. And then the women had the sisterly kiss, if you will. Could you imagine in middle school being forced to do that with all the other kids there? Of course, it would be utter hypocrisy, but there's no way that you would ever feel that way toward anyone. But for some reason, in the life of the church that is built up on the foundation of the gospel of Christ, there's something that overcomes that hostility. There's something that overcomes that sense of inner rage that, that Angela just sang about in the beginning. You know, just calm the rage within me. There's something about our sinfulness that, that hinders us from loving others in that way and being able to, to extend to them any aspect of a greeting of peace. Not only did they often refer to the kiss of peace, but they also often refer to this idea of, of their normal greeting was grace to you and what? Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a common greeting in the church. You see Paul using it again and again as he introduces his epistles to us. Grace to you and peace again and again. And again, that second word, peace, comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which meant in, in many ways just a, 
an overwhelming sense of wholeness and rightness, restoration, reconciliation between God and men. Things are as they should be. He's recommending that they would understand the grace of Christ, that they can understand the peace of God. And the church was meant to be seen as a refuge from that hostility. It was meant to be seen as the, the primary place of restoration in which God is reconciling men to men, women to women. It's meant to be a refuge from the world and its ongoing hostility. I mean, we just came through another election season. It's not difficult for us to see how difficult and hostile our culture is with one another. Each side says the most horrible things about the other side and continues to repeat them every day on how many commercials you've seen. Uh, So-and-so is the most horrible person on the planet. And then as soon as the victor wins uh, the election, immediately he calls for peace, (laughs) right? Let's all just get along and let's be unified and have peace. And and, and this is how it's going to be now. And of course, we all know that's just rhetoric. It's does it mean anything? And then on the other side, we, we find the losers now also accusing one another. It was your fault that we lost. And, and starting from there, and then we even have one primary candidate for the potential opposition party already accusing and attacking the other primary persons in that party. You know who I'm talking about. It's very common. It, it feels like we're back in middle school again. you got bullies and you got people calling each other names, and again, it's Lord of the Flies all over again. And that's just within our own country. You know, and any given day, those outside of our country are also looking to attack us in some way or another. If you just read the headlines and the news, it's, it's never-ending. We, we see again and again, uh, the North Koreans are trying to come up with some rocket that they can finally hit the United States with, Right? We see in Iran, they're constantly trying to build some nuclear bomb. And Russia now, if you read the headlines this week, are now training kids in elementary school how to put firearms together so that they can defend themselves against us. And then we finally see China, every headline that you see almost every other week, impending war, impending war. They're getting ready to defend themselves from the aggression of the Americans. Because of that, so long as there is an America... There will always be a Veterans Day. We will always need men and women to fight and to preserve the security and safety of our country. Right? It's always going to be a need. Because there will not be peace on earth until when? When Christ finally comes back and ushers in His kingdom of peace. But until that day, the promise is that there will always be wars and rumors of wars, no matter how many League of Nations, no matter how many United Nations and any other organization that we put together to try to stop it. We will always have that. And the reason why we'll always have this is because we'll always have sinners who do not know how to repent, who do not know how to reconcile, and who do not know how to love one another. I mean, even the study of history will bear that out again and again. I mean, think about it, all the history textbooks you ever were forced to read or classes you were forced to listen to, what do you remember most about those history classes? Do you not remember the wars the most? Are not those the things that stick out? Those are the things we studied most of the time? I still have the dates of all the wars stuck in my head. I can't get rid of them. I have no idea what else happened those years, but I know this was that war, right? Of course, unfortunately, in our civilization today, now they're learning about who the pop stars were during that time, but that's a different matter. Um, 
But even unbelievers, unbelievers sense, you know, this this ongoing animosity in our culture, and they're sick of it too. They, they don't know what to do about it. I mean, we, we constantly have peace movements, protesters, anti-war movements, whether it's against Vietnam, whether it's against Iraq, whether it's against whatever the next potential war is. And they're continually telling us all, just give peace a chance. Let's live for peace. I mean, I think most of us would agree that peace is something that uh, we all would love to have. No one, except unless you're a arms manufacturer most people don't want war they want peace they want us to live in some sense of harmony none of of us are well at least not many of us are troublemakers at heart most of us want peace most of us want to get along with others so why then would jesus stress this aspect of peacemaking if it's something that even unbelievers have a desire for Well, I think the truth of the matter is this, that even though all people might aspire to some idea of love and peace, we really don't want what God's idea of love and peace are. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to make the sacrifices that are required to obtain those things. And in reality, we we don't want the God who has commanded us to pursue these things. We We want to pursue it in our own way, and it never works. But then, on top of all that, even when we say we want peace, there are other things that we want much more. Most of us want our comfort more than we want peace. Most of us want to be left alone. Uh, we, we want other things that, that take priority over this idea of peace. We may all like the idea of peace, but we rather would much have comfort and pleasure Most of us are not like Donald Trump. We're not the troublemakers, if you will. Rather, we're comfort seekers. We're people fearers. And we're grudge bearers. And a whole host of other things that we could call ourselves if we were honest with what we really want instead of peace. Most of us are not necessarily aggressors, but we will find some way not to seek peace. Aren't you tired of it? I mean, I love the way uh, Peter says, you know, you spent enough time in your life living like a pagan. You spent enough time hating one another and being hated by others. You spent enough time full of rage and hostility and jealousy and envy and all those old bitter pasts. Aren't you tired of it? You know, I remember, I, I'm going to give you a little bit. I, this sermon is almost was too easy for me to preach just because I've experienced so much lack of peace. It's easy to talk about it, I think. Um, my, uh, my best friend growing up in school, uh, I knew him from the time I was in elementary school through, through high school, basically. We lived in the same neighborhood. He lived just down the street from me. We became fast and close friends very quickly. But I noticed that whenever we had a falling out of sorts, we didn't agree on something. Uh, he had a different scheme of how to deal with that than I did. And I thought, well, you know, let's, let's hammer it out. If we have to punch each other, let's get it over with, let's be done with it, whatever, you know. His MO was to give me the silent treatment, which he did for a few weeks at a time. And I thought, okay, well, this is kind of stupid, you know, whatever. And then, you know, eventually he'd get tired of it, and then we'd be friends again, and he would forget whatever it was he was upset with me about. But then it got to the point where he started doing it. We got older, he would do it for months at a time. My junior year, it lasted the entire year. 
He didn't speak a word to me, and I'd have to see him every day. And he literally would like do this and you know, all sorts of stupid things, and you know, just would not talk to me. And uh, significantly, that was the same year of my life that I also became a Christian. It's the first time I sought out a friend who was a Christian just to know what it was like to be with Christian friends. Because my whole MO my entire life was, if someone gets mad at you, they don't talk to you for a long period of time. And then you forget what happens, and then you move on with your life kind of thing. Um, now, some of you, I'm sure, have experienced that within your own families. You know, you've had some people that have, that's, that's how they've handled their anger. They just give you some sort of silent treatment. They hold a grudge, what, what have you. But I remember the first time in college when I had a really close friend, and that guy got mad at me. And I thought, oh, here we go again. Same old thing, you know, I'm, he's not going to talk to me for months and whatever else. And, and I was utterly shocked when he just said to me, all right, I'm really mad at you, we need to talk about this. And I was so glad that he wanted to do it. Because I thought, I'm, I'm so sick of this whole, it never gets resolved. It never overcomes that. So when I became a Christian, after that, and I understood how to make some resolution to these things, I sort of had an inner vow, if you will, to say, you know, whatever, it, it, as long as it's up to me, I'm going to try whatever I can to try to reconcile with someone that I don't see eye to eye with because it's so stupid not to. It's so painful not to. It's so bitter and worthless not to. It doesn't help anybody to constantly hold a grudge against someone. It, it hurts both parties. It doesn't help. And it just makes you feel more and more hopeless and worthless in the end. There's got to be a better way to do that. So uh, we, what we find out in Scripture, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, to be a peacemaker, basically what that signifies is you need to be a peace initiator. In other words, you're going out of your way to try to make peace with someone. Now, there are no guarantees there because there's nothing in the Scripture that says automatically peace will come because you've tried. But the Scripture says that you have to try. You have to initiate. You have to go after this and try to make it right. You cannot just hold a grudge against someone. for you. It just doesn't make any sense. If you're seeking to make peace, you have to initiate peacemaking. So all those expressions that you're used to, don't, 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 don't hold water for Christianity. You can't just let sleeping dogs lie. You can't. You have to stir up the dog, even though you know he might bite you. Sometimes you have to poke the bear if you want to make peace. You're not going to make peace by just letting it alone. That's not how it works. You have to initiate some aspect of peacemaking. I can tell you in my role as a pastor, I've had plenty of experience in this. Plenty. I uh, can't tell you how many times I've tried to help resolve conflict between members of the church but then also trying to resolve conflict between a member and myself in the church, uh, either something that I said from the pulpit or something that I said to them in private in terms of counseling, or whether it's something that, um, something that the elders, the leaders of the church have changed something, and now you have a number of people that are upset with you that you've changed it, and it, you, it's not the way it used to be, and they're holding a grudge against you for that, or it might be because of a building project. I haven't heard too many yet, but we'll see. Give it time. Or most often, the times I have seen the most people upset with me or with the leader in the church is usually over some case of discipline, church discipline uh, in the church. 
where you have to point out someone's sin, you have to deal with it, and yet people get very upset because they think you're just being mean. Um, I think I've shared with you before a very unique situation. I've had to do a number of church discipline cases in the past. But one of them that sticks out to me just tremendously was one. We, we brought a charge against a woman of the church. She was just being very divisive and slandering all the leaders in the church and doing a bunch of other things. We had warned her a number of times to stop doing it. She, she would not uh, cease and desist, if you will. You know, she wouldn't meet with us. She wouldn't talk with us. She just kept bringing these accusations and bringing division in the church. And so finally, we had to take action, and, and we barred her from the Lord's Supper, and we had to make an announcement for the church. This is why we did what we did, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That day, after church, her husband didn't come, neither did she, but her husband shows up at the church right after finished preaching the sermon, and he comes over to me and begins yelling at the top of his lungs, sticking his finger in my chest and threatening me. And I, I try to calm him down. He doesn't listen. He sees one of the other ruling elders in the church. He immediately goes over there and smacks the Bible out of his hand and starts saying, you hypocrite, you this, you that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just kept going on and on and on. All because we had brought discipline against his wife. Somehow we were able to talk him down from the cliff, if you will, and eventually he leaves. Uh, we didn't have to call the police or anything like that. Uh, but lo and behold, the next week he comes into the church parking lot to drop off his son. His son still wanted to come to church, even though he and his wife did not. And uh, I can't let sleeping dogs lie. So I go over to greet him and, you know, continue to try to make peace with him. And, and again, he starts yelling. I have, my, I have two of my girls with me. They're very little at this time. I regret that I had them with me at the time. I brought them over with me. We were walking home. We were walking to our car, and his car was near where, I think it was close to where my car was. And uh, I just, you know, hello, good to see you, blah, blah, blah. Can we talk? Immediately starts yelling at me again, cursing at me this time. And then as soon as I back off and start to walk away, he, he spins out of the parking lot, sticks his middle fingers up at me. And I'm thinking, really? What's up with that, you know? It was just an absolutely crazy time. I'd never seen anything like it before. I'd never seen anyone turn that angry that quickly. And um, it's interesting. Uh, what I'm not telling you is that that man was going, making his decisions based upon a false narrative. His wife had been lying to him. His wife told him that I had abused her somehow and told, her, told him that the elders had been threatening her. And all these other things. They kept, she kept saying all this type of stuff. And anyway, uh, long story short, he ended up talking to someone else in the church that wasn't in leadership, helped him to understand that this was not the truth, this was not the case. And eventually um, found out that uh, she had been telling us, I didn't tell him that at the time, but she had been telling us that he had been abusing her. <laughs> and it was just this constant, you know, it was the, the woman just didn't know how to tell the truth. She was constantly lying every which way. We thought the whole time the husband had, abu had been abusing her and that it led to this, and he thought that we were abusing her, and it, just, it never went anywhere. And so finally, uh, he came to his senses. Sadly, they ended up separating and later got a divorce. And uh, about a year and a half later, he ends up calling me and asked me to meet him, which I did, and we went out to eat breakfast at a place called the Cosmic Omelette. Very cool place. And uh, aliens all around you, it's different. But anyway, um, 
one of the few times in my life I've seen someone that angry who then also said, I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. I didn't know. You know, and it, it was so easy to forgive him because, you know, I knew that what he's saying wasn't true and he knew that what we thought wasn't true and, you know, it was, I wanted to make peace. That was my goal all along was to make peace and it was a beautiful thing. Well, he, he just passed away two months ago and I can honestly say he's a brother in the Lord. At the day all that happened, I had some questions, concerns about whether that was true or not, but he was. He really just needed to hear the truth. Well, um, it doesn't always end that way. Uh, most of the time, seemingly, and, and especially outside the church, but sometimes in the church as well, you try to make peace with others, and they will not make peace with you. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, and eventually you have to realize you're, you're coming up against someone who just simply doesn't want peace. They like being angry. They like holding grudges. They like to, to do that. And at that point, you're no longer held responsible. You, you, you do it as much as it's up to you. You try to make peace. That's what the gospel calls us to. And the reason why is because God first made peace with us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So that he could turn us from his enemy into his friends. And then he loves to do the same thing with the gospel. He then wants to help us turn our enemies into our friends. And we can only do that through the gospel of Christ as we humble ourselves and seek to make peace with others. Now, I'll tell you this. Um, oftentimes, peace is misunderstood in the context of the church especially, but in the world as well. Oftentimes, people equate peace with appeasement. Those are not the same things. Appeasement basically is the idea that we're going to pursue peace at all costs no matter what, even if that means you have to forego justice, righteousness, holiness, purity, uh, doing the right thing. Forget it. We just want peace. Uh, if we think historically, uh, Britain's prime minister, uh, Neville Chamberlain, that was his M.O., right, prior to World War II, all throughout the 30s. Every time Hitler's stealing someone else's land and occupying their territory and continuing to move in, Chamberlain continued to let him have it and say, okay, well, we're going to let you have it and we're going to be at peace because we don't want war. And uh, it was a strategy that he used for a long time until finally Hitler invaded Poland in 39. And then they were already in a treaty with Poland. They couldn't get out of it. They had to go to war at that point. But he kept giving him what he wanted. That's not peace. It's just delaying war. That's all it does. It's the same thing we're seeing even now in our geopolitical movements, uh, in, in our inner warfare and our tribal languages that we have with the other uh, communistic type countries when we see China continue to wanting to take uh, Taiwan and, and Russia having its own land desires if we just appease them it's not going to bring peace don't know what to do but you don't just give them what they want it's never going to work it's a false attempt at peace well the same thing happens in the church Oftentimes in the church you have what are referred to as your conservatives on the one hand, then you have your liberals on the other hand, and every denomination, every church. Then you'll have those people in the middle, they call themselves moderates. And the moderates just want to be liked, and they just want everybody to like each other, and they're always just saying, let's just get along and have peace, and let's promote unity. And then they look at someone like me, who's typically more conservative, and says, you're just a big meanie. You're horrible. You don't love anybody. You're always pointing out their sin, and, you, and you, you won't let it lie. You won't just let it be. 
But again, if you want to make peace, you can't have peace without righteousness. You can't have peace without repentance, reconciliation. That's just appeasement. It doesn't work. It's not true peace. But you'll still have people in the church every, every place crying out, we just want peace. We, we just want unity. It doesn't matter. We just stop fighting. But there has to be some fight for righteousness or else it's not true peace. Again, if you look at the order of the Beatitudes, look what comes prior to this. In the Beatitudes, we start with this idea of poverty of spirit. There's something wrong with me. I'm poor in righteousness. I'm very rich in sin. I need to repent. I need to mourn over my sin. Blessed are the mourners. And then we keep going in that direction. We finally get to this idea of what we talked about last week. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart are the ones that are thirsting for righteousness. Living for purity. Living for holiness. And yet there will always be some who don't. You can't have peace without righteousness. Listen, listen to a couple of the passages in Scripture. We see this again and again. James 3.17, half-brother of Jesus says this, Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. First pure, then peaceable. We, in our study of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 14, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You don't strive for peace and then ignore holiness. It has to be both. You're striving for both. If you don't have both, you don't have peace. It's a false peace. To have true peace, you have to acknowledge sin and seek to repent of it. Because ultimately, peace is not a lack of warfare. Peace is a reconciliation. When God talks about peace, it's always reconciling person to person, whether it's God to man or man to man. You can only have it. Reconciliation can only take place through some sense of repentance. It's not going to happen apart from that. Listen, uh, Psalm 85, verse 10. Psalmist says, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. You want to talk about the kiss of peace? It only takes place when righteousness, holiness, purity are involved. You cannot give the kiss of peace merely by saying, let's have peace. The false prophets are constantly saying, peace, peace, peace. When there is no peace, it has to be addressed. The same thing can be said about evangelism. Every time we talk about the gospel, if all I tell you is that there is a heaven for you, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and that He loves to give you grace, and that's all I tell you, I'm not giving you the gospel. I have to first tell you, you've sinned. You have rebelled against a holy God. You are worthy of His punishment. You are worthy of, of death and hell forever. You are worthy of all of this and so much more, and all the miseries that you can receive in this life. That's what we deserve. The good news only becomes good when I then tell you God gives grace to sinners who repent of their sin. But if I, if I try to tell you the gospel and not talk about sin, I'm not giving you the gospel. It's just not the case. When we think of some of those big-name preachers that you'll hear on the radio, especially some of the crazy ones, There's some that purposely will never mention sin. Will never say the word repentance. I was telling the small group last time, it's not always what they say that proves them to be a heretic. It's sometimes what they don't say. They can say grace, 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 peace, 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 but they never say repent. You have to repent of your sin. 
And when you seek to do that, God gives you the kiss of peace. If you don't seek to repent, you're not going to know that peace. The prophet Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked. He repeats it twice. There is no peace for the wicked. Sinners have to seek to repent. Now again, none of us do it perfectly. I'm not saying you have to have all of your sins repented of and you've cleared out the whole house and then you're good. No, there's a constant sense of repentance. There's a constant sense of reconciliation that has to be at work for peacemakers. But to be a peacemaker doesn't always mean you're telling others about their sins. <laughs> That's not too hard, even though they hate you for it. It's much harder to be a peacemaker when you have to listen to others tell you that you've sinned. That's a little different matter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he's not saying if you hold something against your brother. He's saying if your brother holds something against you, don't let sleeping dogs lie. Go stir it up. That's no fun. <laughs> Especially when you know they have something against you. Uh, some of my most awkward moments in ministry is when I've had to uh, confront people that I know were upset with me but didn't tell me that they're upset with me. Uh, every now and then I've found out things in different ways. One was through an email that I wasn't supposed to see, but somehow it got sent to me. Once I went into the trash can in my office, which also served as sort of the secretarial office. It was all one office in one. And there was a letter in there that someone started to write in which they were very angry with me, and they signed it and then threw it away in the trash can. And somehow I could see it had my name on it, so I picked it up like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, this person's really upset with me. What do I do? Let sleeping dogs lie? No. I go talk to them. And I'm so glad I did. It was so easy to reconcile with that person because they were trying. They wanted to reconcile, but then they chickened out. <laughs> and I helped them to see, I'm, I'm not that ogre of a man. You can talk to me. It can happen. I once chased an elder into the men's bathroom <laughs> because he refused to to reconcile with me. He had not come to our church for like six months. He came because there was a wedding. It was someone he really loved and knew, and he came, and he tried to avoid me at all costs, and he somehow went to the bathroom. I was like, uh-oh, here it comes. I come up into him. I'm like, we need to talk. Stop avoiding this. I know you're mad at me. You know you're mad at me. Can we please talk? It doesn't have to be this way. But to do that, you have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to humble yourself and hear what they have to say. I mentioned to you before on a number of occasions that when you're praying through the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not confirming our natural prayer desires and petty requests. He's rather teaching us how to pray as we ought to, right? He's, he's turning it upside down. Our normal prayers is bless me and give me what I want. And Jesus is saying, no, you should be praying, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the problem is, when it comes to peacemaking, we're so busy trying to keep our name hallowed. We're so busy trying to keep our name pure and spotless that we refuse to hear what the other person has to say. We're so busy to make sure that our kingdom is continuing to be built up, not torn down by someone who's 
telling us we've done something wrong. And certainly, we're not praying for our will to be done, but for God's will to be done. If God's will is to be done, then that means I have to be confronted in my sin. I have to be able to listen to it. So he's, he's telling us how to pray, how to live, how to think in that sense. The, the, the cross of Christ, this is very important, the cross of Christ is not merely the source of our salvation. The cross of Christ is also the pattern for our sanctification. In order for us to grow in godliness, we have to die. We have to die to ourselves. We have to die to our pride. We have to die to a claim to a good name that we really don't have a rightful claim on in the first place. All of us want to preserve a pure name that simply does not exist. We're trying to pretend to be something that we're not. And so we continue to defend that, defend our old self, defend our sinful flesh. We don't want to hear what the other person has to say, and therefore we don't put the death the misdeeds of the body like we're supposed to. And therefore, we can't put on the new life of Christ because we're so busy trying to prop up the old dead guy. It doesn't work. And no one believes it. You're trying to fool everybody. Everybody sees right through you. You still sin. You need to repent of it. I still sin. I need to repent of it. And it has to be done on a daily basis. And sometimes the best thing for us is for someone to actually point it out to us no matter how badly they do it. And they will do it badly. But we have to understand how vile our sin really is, how much it hinders us from actually walking with God and, and pursuing the peace that we ought to pursue. We need to stop defending our pride and lay it down if we want to grow in godliness. That's not easy to do. Especially since most of us, the older we get, we've practiced our defensive schemes for years. We know how to get out of these things, do we not? Some of us have a tendency to give the silent treatment. Oh, you bothered me. You said something you shouldn't have. Boom, we're done. Some of us just hold grudges for years. Some of us scream over and yell over the other person to let them know enough's enough. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Forget it. I'm upset. We have a number of different ways that we approach it. Or, you know, if you're someone like me, it can be a tendency to like, oh, well, that's true here, but what about this? What about you? Let me cut you as you've cut me. We all have a tendency. There's different ways that we seek to defend ourselves so we don't have to listen to what that person's saying. Cut off the conversation. Resist making peace. But you know, you can turn that around. It can. The Holy Spirit actually begins to convict us right when we're in the midst of that. If you listen, He will immediately bring conviction, help you see, you're just a horrible person. That's not the devil talking. That's the Holy Spirit talking. You're, you're being horrible right now. Why are you fighting? This person's trying to tell you the truth, and, and, and you're fighting for no reason. I've I found myself on a number of occasions when I'm about to lose it. The Holy Spirit somehow speaks to my heart. And I begin to ask, why am I so angry again? What am I defending? And is it worth defending? When I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, immediately I'm like, this is so stupid. <laughs> Listen to what they have to say. When I'm not walking to the Holy Spirit, 
There goes the rage. And I'm raging for no reason. I'm defending something that's worthless. But that's what we do when we're not walking with the Spirit. So I often have to ask myself, why am I so angry? Step back, James 4 says, why are all these quarrelings in this story? What's causing this? It's the greatest question you can ask yourself. Why am I angry right now? What am I so proud about that I have to defend this? And in the end, you'll find out it's not about God's name. It's not about God's kingdom. It's not about God's will. It's about me. I'm trying to defend me. I don't have to defend me. That's why Jesus justified me. He declared me to be righteous and innocent, not because I am, but because he is. And he gives that to me. I can accept that now as a gift of salvation freely from him, but only if I admit that I'm not righteous. I'm not pure. I'm not holy. And so when someone points it out to you, you'll be like, that's right. I'm not. I agree with you. I confess my sins. Help me to trust in Christ more. Help me to promote that more. That's so hard to do, though, because immediately you have to die to yourself. It's the same way. When Jesus is dying for our sins, he's setting the pattern for us that we have to die to our sins. If we don't put them to death, we're constantly building up the old guy, and that old guy is just a stinking, rotten piece of flesh. That's all it is. If you know you're about to have a confrontational meeting with someone, you better pray immediately. (laughs) If you know you find yourself getting angry at that moment, pray immediately, Lord, Help me to be calm. Help me not to open my mouth until I have something constructive to say. And even then, give me the wisdom to say it at the proper manner, the proper timing, the proper way, because I know that I won't. I know that I won't. And if you ever write a letter to someone that you're trying to confront or have responding to their confrontation, please have someone else read it. (laughs) Have them read it twice. You don't realize what you say and how you say it. And even as you're saying it face-to-face with someone, you, you have no idea the nuances that we give, how easily we hurt one another. We do it. And we need to repent of that. But we have to remind ourselves, ultimately, I'm not seeking to win an argument. I'm seeking to win a person. I'm seeking to win a relationship, win back a friendship that I've lost. Because the goal is not to win a war of words, but to let the Word of God win my heart and theirs. It's a big difference. You're not trying to win. Christ has already won. Rejoice in that. But that's the promise of peace, the the, the blessing of shalom, that wholeness, that healthiness that comes through a right relationship with God. It speaks of being turned back toward a right relationship with each other. But it always starts with Christ, the Prince of Peace Himself. Shalom incarnate. He had come to establish peace by shedding His own blood on the cross, and then He comes to preach peace both to those who are near as well as to those who are far away that they might know and enjoy the peace of God. There's no peace for the wicked, but there's great peace for those who come by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, Christ was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds we are healed. By His wounds we have shalom. We have wholeness. This would make sense that peacemakers themselves would be called sons of God because now they're following that same pattern. They're walking in that same manner. They're 
promoting that same message. He calls us ambassadors of Christ, promoting reconciliation with God and men. We're promoting this new message of peace that can be found through the cross of Christ. And so we have to be willing to promote that message only through pain, through suffering, through dying to ourselves, even dying to our... what what other people think about us because even if we're in the right and even if we did it right and even if we're having to confront someone else in their sin and they're still mad at us and they're still yelling at us and still cursing us is that any different than what christ went through on the cross it's the same thing same thing but that's the pattern that we follow either way the apostle paul says in ephesians 6 that each day as we're we're preparing to enter into spiritual warfare right even in the context sometimes of the home and of the church, as we're preparing to enter into spiritual warfare, we're not just putting on the helmet of salvation. We're not just taking up the shield of faith. We're also told specifically that as we're preparing to fight against the spiritual forces of evil, that we're also supposed to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. So even as we're looking to fight against demonic forces, we're looking to make peace with human forces. We can only give them that if we understand the gospel ourselves, if we have enjoyed the peace of God, we can give that peace to others, even as we know rightly how to fight wickedness and yet love that sinner and offer them peace by seeking to make peace with them. That's why Isaiah says in 52.7, and Paul later reiterates in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Who do what? Who proclaim Peace. Beautiful feet. Because most of our feet are proclaiming something else, right? He says you purposely have to put on those shoes each day as you're putting on your helmet of salvation, as you're taking up the shield of faith, you're taking up the sword of the Spirit, as you're getting ready to fight against your own sin and against those other forces out there, spiritual forces, we also have to be ready to make peace with men and make peace with God. You know, I imagine all of you at some point or another maybe have been embarrassed by some of your family members went out in public. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you're the one that embarrasses the family members. Uh, As a parent, it's easy to be embarrassed by your children, especially when they're young because they say all sorts of junk and do all sorts of weird things. And sometimes they'll throw a temper tantrum right in the middle of Walmart or whatever it is. Or they'll say some very inappropriate thing. And, and, and our tendency probably is like, let the kid lay on the floor. And it's not my kid, you know. Yeah. They look, you know, other parents see you're like, oh, that, that, he's like a friend of the family. He's not, that's not my, that's not my kid. You don't want to own your kid because they're acting horribly, right? Well, well here is the, is the exact opposite. Literally, Christ is saying that when God sees us seeking to make peace with men. He's so excited to tell others, this is my son. She's my daughter. Look at them. Look at them work out that peace. As badly as they're trying to do it, they're seeking peace. They know how to give peace to one another because I've given it to them. And it's such a lovely thing. I want to own them. I want to acknowledge they are my sons. They are my daughters because they know how to make peace. There's no peace for the wicked. 
But there's great peace, peace that passes all our understanding that can happen when we simply humble ourselves and seek to bring peace to others. May the the Lord so humble us in that manner that we might learn to walk in the Spirit, mortifying our flesh and seeking to build up the body of Christ and to bring the gospel to unbelievers by making peace. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us in this endeavor, help us in this calling, help us to flesh out this beatitude. We know that it's not our natural tendency. It's not the natural tendency of anybody in this planet. We all have a tendency to take up the sword against the wrong people. We all have a tendency to defend our flesh and to let things lie that shouldn't stay there. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the courage the strength, the energy, the love to confront others when we need to, whether it's because of a sin that they've committed or whether it's a sin that we've committed that they have held against us. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to offer our worship unto you in vain, in a hypocritical manner, because we're coming in a way that we're not acknowledging the peace that passes understanding, but rather we're acknowledging some partial peace or some appeasement or some other thing that's false. Lord, help us to be peacemakers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.